0: This time on Novell Open Audio, we're talking SUSE Linux Enterprise Desktop Service Pack 1 with Michelle Casey and Ron Terry about Zen virtualization. This time on Novell Open Audio.
1: Welcome to Novell Open Audio, a podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm Randy Goddard. And I'm David Mayer. On this podcast, we have Michelle Casey talking with us about SUSE Linux Enterprise Desktop 10 Service Pack 1. Dave, we had a great time in that interview. What'd you think?
0: We learned all that's coming that's new. There are some nice new features in the Service Pack, support for new hardware. Let's hear from Michelle.
1: Hi, this is Randy Goddard and David Mayer. How are you, Dave? Good, Randy. Good to be here. Great. Today we have in the studio with us Michelle Casey, product manager for Desktop Strategies here at Novell. And today we're going to talk about Service Pack 1. Welcome, Michelle.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here, Randy Great. and Dave.
1: Thank you, Michelle. Good to see you. First thing,
0: the thing everyone cares about, when can we expect the Service Pack?
2: The Service Pack will be coming very shortly. We're just finalizing the last few things that we need to have done, and then we will release that to the public, so very shortly.
0: Great. And the last few things you got to get done, what can we expect from the Service Pack?
2: So, for our Service Pack, we're really focusing on, first of all, expanding what we did last year with the release of the SUSE Linux Enterprise Desktop. So it's really about taking that initial release and improving the performance and the quality, of course, for the customer, along with providing some new features and enhancements to the desktop as well.
0: And particularly in this case, we're talking about the desktop. A question that's going to come to my mind as an administrator is, do I have to download one giant service pack with both server and desktop, or can I go download a service pack for each?
2: You can actually, we've separated them out, and actually, as you know, we have our Novell Customer Center, which is what we use with our customers in order to register their product and get their maintenance updates. So the actual service pack will be available on Novell Customer Center, so users will be able to use the same tools that they're already using. So to to clarify
1: that, Michelle, then, with these tools that you mentioned that we're using, on the desktop, of course, is the Zen Updater applet and it will display when new features or new patches are available. So will the service pack then show up as a new item that's available, or will all the individual pieces of the service pack show up as available?
2: Well, I think what we want to really direct our users to do is, first of all, take a look at our documentation and our release notes. Um, there are some things that they want to consider, especially if they're using any of the ATR or the NVIDIA graphic cards. So we want to make sure that, first of all, you read the release notes carefully before you go through any of the process. Then there are going to be a couple steps through the Zen Updater that prepare you for the service pack. So there's an online migration patch that you will actually download and install first, and that will actually kick off the overall process for you. So, again, it will be automated. You will see those packages coming, but there are some distinct steps that people need to take, which is why I encourage everyone to read the release notes and follow the instructions that we give them.
1: So, Michelle, tell us a little bit more about this move to SP1 patch.
2: Well, really, again, we have to do several things in order to prepare them for it's not a traditional maintenance. It's actually a service pack. So we want to make sure that they're prepared for the service pack. So we've actually created a patch that prepares them for the packages that are part of service pack one. So they'll select the patch and then the patch will actually start the process and it's fully automated for them.
1: Great,
2: great. And then you've also still got the traditional media. So, for those people who have their subscriptions, they can go to the customer care portal at download.novelle.com, sign in with their account, and they will also be able to download the ISOs if they want to just burn physical media. So,
0: who does this? Is this an administrator process or an end user process?
2: We've really tried to consider it from many angles, simply because if you're in a large company, an administrator is going to control the quality of the service pack before they actually release it to their end users, but they still want to be able to leverage what's on the desktop in order to facilitate that effort. So we've automated it to the extent that if an administrator has an internal repository that they're testing and hosting before they release to their users, they can still leverage that, but the online updater will still automate it for the end user. And then there are some that are remote locations. Perhaps they don't have the bandwidth to do the online migration. They just want to use a physical media. So we still provide both methods for administrators. So it's really geared for either a user or an administrator.
0: And I can prohibit an end user doing updates if I'm an administrator that wants to control and manage that all myself?
2: Well, certainly. Again, they have to have access to the Novell Customer Center for the online update or they have to have certain rights in order to actually get this to work. So the administrator should be able to control this fully.
0: So, this is a desktop service pack. What really goes in there? I mean, I can understand on the server service pack we have the Novell services, the big features, NSS, clustering, etc. It doesn't seem like you'd expect anywhere near as much in. A desktop service pack, what's actually in there?
2: Well, I mean, let's start with, first of all, the things that are important to an enterprise customer, which is, of course, their interoperability with their directory sources, whether that be Active Directory or eDirectory. We've done considerable work between what we released last year, SUSE Linux Enterprise Desktop 10, and what we've done with Service Pack 1 in terms of Active Directory integration. So... Users who are integrating this into their Active Directory environments are going to see significant improvements to that experience based on the work that we've done over the last eight months.
0: Reliability and performance?
2: Reliability and performance both. In addition, the Evolution client, we've done significant work around performance, scalability, and also the Exchange Connector. So users who have been using that client should see improved performance as well. So OpenOffice. OpenOffice is one of the products that people are most familiar with probably on the desktop in terms of productivity and what they do daily. Um, It's something that they engage with every day. We've worked to make sure that we've included Microsoft Word OpenXML translators, and we will also be adding updates as the year progresses for Excel as well. So we're making sure that we keep that compatibility story between customers who have both OpenOffice and a need to open files that come from Microsoft Office. In addition, we've done some great things with the Impress product where, especially if you do a lot of presentations, you can actually sit with your notes displayed to you on one screen with the actual slideshow presenting to your audience. So, you know, we've done a lot of work around that. And, of course, we continue to evolve our support for VB macros and things of that nature on the OpenOffice Productivity Suite. So I think our users will be very pleased to see the advancements that we've made with OpenOffice as well. And in addition, we are updating Mozilla Firefox to 2.0 in keeping with what's going on in the open source community, making sure that we're providing browsers that are secure and safe for our end users. So that's another reason that people should be interested in what we've done between SUSE Linux Enterprise 10 and now.
0: And there's some really good points in there. Generally speaking, particularly in the server products, new features are not something that tend to appear just for a matter of uh, stability but in this case On the desktop, we've got a whole host of new features coming in the server spec.
2: Right. We do try and keep the stability. Again, we are a common code base, so we do try and, you know, make sure that everything that we're doing does not compromise the stability of the platform itself. But you're right. On the server side, it's more about, you know, just improving performance, enhancing performance. For us, it's more about continuing our innovation and making sure that we're still providing things that are relevant in the market today to the end user from the desktop perspective. But again, we're still leveraging the partnerships and the things that we do on the platform itself, like hardware enablement for new hardware. So we're able to basically partner with our server side and make sure that the latest hardware does work with the desktop as well.
1: So with all of this new hardware support, Michelle, do we now have support for Intel's Santa Rosa chipset?
2: Yes, we have been working with Intel closely to make sure that their latest hardware releases are supported with our platform. So our customers will be able to expect that from us.
1: That's great. So I'm curious, Michelle, at what point after having fixed all of the defects that we have and added these enhancements, in the beta cycle, at what point does product management finally say, enough, we're stopping the beta, this is gold master, we're ready for release?
2: Well, that's something that's really set up early on. We try and and get our schedules ironed out to include what's a fair and reasonable beta period and where should we start to expect that Gold Master is ready. So that's something that we put into our overall planning. I wouldn't say that we have an actual formula for that. We kind of have to gauge where we are when the beta start and what kind of feedback we start to receive from customers when the beta begins, because we do want to integrate as much customer feedback as possible into the final distribution. But we do have to walk the fine line of at that point, you know, there are some things that we can do and there's some things that we can't.
1: So if something is considered critical by, for example, the community or our beta testers, is that something then that would influence a potential slip date in order to have Goldmaster postponed to address that critical need?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we do have to listen to our audience. They are the people that are purchasing our products and services. So if they bring to us a critical issue that will basically keep them from deploying Our solution. We have to evaluate if that can be accommodated, and if so, we will make the necessary adjustments to do it.
0: Great. And the conclusion we could draw from that then is that the fact that you are as good as ready to release means that we're not in a situation where someone is banging on the door saying, You've got to fix this. We're in a position where we're relatively stable with customer feedback.
2: Right, exactly. We're very stable, and we're just finalizing and preparing for that final release. So
0: so what happens the day after release? Do you immediately start fixing? Oh, I take fixing- the day off. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the day after that, do you immediately go into SP2?
2: We go into several things. We start certainly evaluating what things are coming in from the community and from our customers. So we go into maintenance mode for SP2. We also have sometimes interim releases between support packs if there's a critical issue found and we have to release a I believe they're calling them ptf file those are things that are evaluated and things are placed on the maintenance channel as we go so we don't necessarily wait for the next major release of a support pack to provide additional updates that's what's the beauty of Novell customer center is that we can post that and give it to our customers as soon as it's available so but it does go into support pack two planning and then also the next generation of the desktop product itself
1: And speaking of the next generation, what sort of things uh, are on the docket? What can we expect? What can we look for and hope for with Service Pack 2?
2: For Service Pack 2, again, we'll probably start moving more towards just stability in the platform, performance and stability, defect fixing, things of that nature. We'll have to evaluate new features as they come in. We certainly don't want to keep a trend of you know, inundating customers with a lot of new features. But you can continue to see evolution of the OpenOffice product suite, Firefox, and Evolution.
0: I think it'd have to be said that one of the great advantages with components like OpenOffice is the update cycles, including major feature, is much faster, much more aggressive without sacrificing quality than you would get with commercial proprietary products
2: oh exactly and that's the beauty of the community model and we've got a lot of different people looking at open office and contributing to the project along with we have a dedicated team here at novell that works exclusively on open office so you know there are going to be rapid advancements and new features and implementation around that product, and we want to make sure that customers are able to take advantage of that.
0: All right, but the thing every end user out there cares about: Are you going to turn on wobbly Windows by default? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, we still leave that up to the users. Um, there are, you know, there are some people that enjoy the desktop effects, and there are some people who actually don't even have the hardware to support it. So. You know, we don't have it on by default. We allow people to choose whether or not they want to enable it, and we leave that choice up to the user. So we'll continue to leave the choice up to the user.
0: Okay, so what else is new?
2: Some new features we've implemented in Service Pack 1 would include things such as a disk space Usage utility. So if you're running out of disk space, you're wondering where all your disk space is going. You can launch this utility, and it will actually go and evaluate your hard drive, and give you a graphical representation of the disk space that's being used.
0: And of course, we've got to mention the du-h. <laughs> yeah, all of us have been doing this for a while. We've got du-h, but we're talking about a graphical utility. We're talking about a
2: graphical interface. It's easy to use, easy to view, right. easy to find. great What else? Some other things, um, a new menu editor. So for enterprise customers who've really wanted to customize the application menu... Where they perhaps have their own applications that they use as a company or they want to change the order in the application menu or customize it in some way, maybe even possibly removing certain things. We've actually got a new utility that's included in Service Pack 1 that allows them to do that.
0: And I understand you're encouraging thieves to chop the fingers off people they steal their thinkpads from
2: Uh, yes so we have actually worked to include support for the new fingerprint readers that are coming embedded on laptops such as those seen by our partner lenovo
0: stand by to see uh stories of people having their fingers amputated by thieves
2: well let's just be glad it wasn't one of the retinal scanners so (laughs) you can go without a finger
0: (laughs) do we have anything else
2: uh, those are probably the big things, of course, continue to look um, advances under banshee and f spot for photos. Um, a lot of our perhaps not our enterprise customers, but certainly our users are utilizing those tools and we continue to add features and support around those as well and tomboy um, a lot of people have found the the benefits of tomboy, and so we 've implemented some new features with tomboy as well, such as bullet points, which is such a big thing i mean i 'm a bullet point junkie, so I love that feature great oh and one more thing i encourage people to take a look at our new international clock applet that we have on the desktop which for those of you who have to set up conference calls in multiple time zones you can actually set up your time zones and easily view in your clock what time it is at any given point around the world so i encourage people to take a look at that because i think it's a useful tool
0: cool new clock who could live without it cool calculator thank you very much for joining us today Next up is Ron Terry talking to us about Zen virtualization. I wasn't here for
1: that one, Randy. How did it go? This was a great interview. Ron is very technical and really knows his stuff. And it's it's a great overview for those who are interested in getting involved with Zen virtualization technologies. Let's hear it. Okay,
3: today in the studio, uh, Randy and I have Ron Terry, who's one of our ATT, Advanced Technical Training Engineers. And we asked Ron to come in and talk to us about XEN, or Zen Virtualization, that's uh, in and going to be enhanced in uh, SUSE Linux Enterprise Server 10 SP1, which is just about ready to ship. Ron, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. Randy, how's it going? Hey, Aaron. I'm well, thanks. So let's just jump right into it. What I really want to do is get a basic overview of what Xen is. So first, Ron, what is Zen and what is virtualization?
4: Well, virtualization basically is the concept of being able to run multiple operating systems simultaneously on a single piece of hardware. Typically, when you talk about virtualization, that's what we're talking about. Most people probably have some exposure, I would imagine, to virtualization because of VMware and uh, these other hypervisors and virtualization solutions that have been in the market for years. Zen now is an open-source virtualization project that was started, I don't know, a few years back, specifically around the concept of uh, para-virtualization, which I think we're going to talk about in more detail when we get through farther into the interview. It's basically just an open source project that's allowing us to get better performance and a different way of doing virtualization.
3: Yeah, and let's actually talk about that. Because when we do something like uh, bring up a virtual machine under VMware... What VMware is actually doing is they're emulating everything about that computer, right? They're exactly. They're emulating the they're Doing BIOS. what we call full
4: virtualization, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
3: they're doing an emulation of everything that the physical machine would actually have and emulating it in software. Now, that's quite a bit different than what happens by default in XEN, right? XEN works with something called the hypervisor. Can you explain what the hypervisor is? Yeah,
4: so all virtualization solutions or projects you're talking about here all have a hypervisor. What the hypervisor is, is it's the entity that allows virtualization to actually happen. It's the thing that abstracts the underlying hardware into multiple virtual instances. And in the case of Xen, Xen is that actual hypervisor. And this is another one of those things that some people often get confused about, is that Xen is part of Linux. That's actually not true. Xen is actually its own binary. It actually gets loaded in as its own separate binary before it creates the virtual machine environment in which... Linux and then other operating systems can run as well.
3: So when I boot up my machine after I've turned on XEN, you know, in the grub menu, I now have an option to boot the XEN kernel. Yes. And I select that. What you just mentioned is it doesn't actually load Linux and then load up the XEN. What actually happens is, Xen itself loads, correct?
4: Yes, exactly. Xen loads first, and it runs down a ring zero. It then creates what we call domains or virtual machines, and then inside that virtual machine, you then boot Linux or other virtual machines. And this is actually what makes Xen quite a bit different from other virtualization solutions like VMware, is that instead of the hypervisor loading after the host operating system itself loads, we actually load the hypervisor first, And then every operating system that technically runs on top of that is actually a a virtual machine, including what we would typically refer to as the host operating system or the management operating system, which in our case is Celeste 10.
3: And that's commonly referred to as DOM 0, right?
4: Exactly, yes. That would be DOM
3: 0 or domain 0. Okay. And that's actually then the domain where... I'm going to configure additional VMs from, I'm going to launch my VMs, or whatever I want to do.
4: Domain zero is what we call the privileged domain. It's the domain that has the ability to talk directly to the hypervisor itself that's running underneath, allowing it to create other domains or virtual machine environments, to control those, to start them, to stop them, to change the allocation of of physical resources, like how much memory, how much CPU time, all of that stuff. The DOM zero has the capability of getting in. So we run the management utilities inside of DOM zero which allows us then to configure all of these other pieces.
3: Okay, and let's talk about some of the different types of virtualization we can have. Y- you talked about earlier, you mentioned para-virtualization, and then there's full virtualization.
4: Exactly, yeah, para-virtualization and full virtualization. Now, with full virtualization, that's typically when you think about virtualization today, things like VMware and such, they do full virtualization. And that's where the virtual machine in which you're running your operating system, the, the, the virtual operating system, so to speak, That is a completely emulated environment. The operating system running inside that virtual machine never sees actual physical hardware underneath and never communicates directly with any of the hardware underneath. And the hardware that it's seeing is all being emulated by the hypervisor and and other utilities.
3: In fact, one of the key things is that under full virtualization, the operating system that's uh, running in that virtualized session doesn't know that it's being virtualized.
4: Oh, exactly. Yeah, you can run any operating system or should be able to, should, I guess, being the operative term, any operating system that w- would run on bare metal should be able to run just fine in a full fully virtualized environment because it just doesn't know the difference. Exactly. It's completely oblivious that anything else is running on the box. Now, para-virtualization, the alternative to that, which is the native mode of virtualization for Zen, is uh, quite a bit different because in the case of paravirtualization virtualization we're actually exposing some of the underlying hardware pieces, the hypervisor and some of the other stuff, to where it can interact more directly with the underlying pieces being managed and, I guess, mediated by that hypervisor. The advantage of this, of, of paravirtualization virtualization really is because you have more direct access to the real actual hardware and the real actual subsystems is you get much better performance. Very good, very close to bare metal performance in, in many cases. The downside to paravirtualization, virtualization however, is that you have to modify the kernel of the operating system that's going to run in that paravirtualized virtualized environment. One of the main reasons for that is, typically operating system kernels think they're running in ring zero. They have to run in ring zero, which is that that the privileged ring that gives them full access to all of the memory and all of the hardware. In the case of Zen. The Zen hypervisor itself is running in Ring 0, and it actually runs the kernel of the operating systems that are running in the VMs in Ring 1. And that's why they have to be modified, is the kernel has to be modified to know that it's actually not in Ring 0 and to know that it has to coordinate with the entity running in Ring 0, which is, is the hypervisor, to be able to actually get to the actual hardware. But even with that coordination that has to happen there, you still get much better performance than emulating the whole hardware environment uh, like you do in full virtualization, so
3: unlike full virtualization in para virtualization, the operating system that's being virtualized knows that it's being virtualized, yes exactly, and because of that, we get a great big, huge performance increase. Exactly.
4: Yeah, and it can be aware to a certain degree of that other operating systems may be running on the box. I mean, if it's aware to a certain degree, it doesn't affect them unless, of course, that operating system is running in DOM0, which we talked about as being the, the management domain.
3: Let's talk about just rough performance difference between full virtualization and para-virtualization.
4: Uh, that's a good question. You know, I haven't seen any of the, the numbers lately, but typically the numbers that are typically batted around as far as the, the performance of para-virtualized guest operating Systems is typically you're going to get maybe a, a 5 to 10% performance hit for pair virtualized operating systems.
3: Now let's talk about that real quick because every time I mention that to people, they get confused. So the scenario we're talking about is we have two identical boxes. We bring up one box with just plain SLES 10 SP1 on it. We install an application. We benchmark that application. Now sure. we move that over to XEN. We put the xen kernel on that box it comes up dom0 comes up then under domu under one of the virtualized sessions we run sles 10 sp1 with that same application but in a virtualized manner specifically paravirtualized we will only it'll only run 3 to 5% slower than it did when it was on that dedicated box correct yeah
4: yeah something like that is a good general terms yes that's exactly what we're talking about
3: but if I add three or four virtual machines on that same box, performance is going to go down. Exactly. So I'm glad be...
4: you actually brought that up because one of the reasons that most people are looking into virtualization is for server consolidation. I mean, that's the big flag of, hey, we're want we want it, we're, you know, we're burning too much power in data centers. It's creating too much heat. We're taking up too much space, all for the fact that our servers are running at 10% average utilization. You know, so they're saying that here's the holy grail. We're going to run multiple instances of the operating system on one physical piece of hardware, and that's going to save us tons of money. And that is true, except that one of the pitfalls that people don't realize is that your average utilization is going to increase now that you're running three or four virtual machines on one physical hardware. But what you're not going to have is your peak performance. You're actually going to take a a hit performance, hit and peak performance, because when only one operating system is running on the box, it can burst up to 100% of that CPU, 100% of the resource utilization. Now that that's being shared, any one virtual machine cannot actually uh, burst up to that 100%. So your your peak utilization is actually going to be worse than it was before. But your average utilization is going to be much better.
3: And one of the other uh, key benefits that you get is power in your data center.
4: Exactly, yeah. So, again, one of the biggest reasons, again, why we're looking at that is just we can now instead of having to run five or ten actual physical servers, I can run one or two physical servers and have the operating systems running in the virtual machines on those servers saving tons of power. Exactly.
3: Now that we know the difference between full virtualization and para-virtualization, let's just real quick run through and talk about what OSs are officially supported. Exactly.
4: So, as of the original release uh, of SLES 10, we really only supported SLES 10 as the operating system running in either full or para-virtualization. Now, as of support pack 1 or SP1, we're not we're not supporting just SLES 10. We still support SLES 10 obviously, but in the case of para-virtual virtual machines, we're supporting SLES 10. We now will support SLED 10 SLED being the desktop product, we're actually shipping Zen with SLED as well, so you can run it in that environment. We're also supporting OES-2 NetWare, also known as NetWare 6.5 SP7. It will run in a paravirtualized virtualized environment as well, as well as uh, OES-2 Linux, which is based on Sles 10 SP1. So those are the operating systems that we will be supporting in paravirtualized virtualized environments. In full virtual environments, we will actually support those same operating systems. Though I have to say, if you can run it in a para-virtual environment, you're really not benefiting at all running it in a full virtual if it will run in para. So the suggestion is, hey, if it runs para, run it para, even though we will support it in full. Um, The big thing in full, though, is we allow you to run Windows now. And this is one of the big things is that we've always been kind of able to do this, but... We haven't actually supported you running Windows. So now we're going to support you running Windows XP, Windows 2000 Server, and Windows Server 2003 in a full virtual environment as well. Also, we're going to be supporting Red Hat Enterprise 4 and Red Hat Enterprise 5 in full virtualization. Cool.
1: Now, in the virtualization community, there are some buzzwords out there that we all hear, and they can be somewhat confusing to kind of a newbie or somebody who's trying to, to get into to virtualization. Maybe could you address a couple of those, you know, VT technology versus Pacifica versus, you know, PAE we hear, you know, c- could you address some of the, these buzzwords?
4: For yeah, us absolutely. Please. So this is something that's important to bring up as well. As we talked about the concept of paravirtualization virtualization and full virtualization, Zen actually requires special CPUs to be able to run full virtualization. These CPUs have to support these new virtualization extensions, often referred to as VT extensions or, or VT instructions. The new CPUs being created by Intel and AMD both support these new virtualization extensions. Now, the funny thing is, is that AMD and Intel both do their virtualization extensions in two completely different and I would say, mutually incompatible ways. I'd say incompatible in that the way that AMD does it and the way that uh, Intel does it are, are completely different. Zen, however, supports both of those methods of the VT extensions 100%. So it's actually transparent to the user whether you're using a VT uh, extensions on Intel or VT extensions on AMD. So in the case of Intel, they actually label n- there's Intel... VT is their um, tagline or their their, their um, acronym. Their acronym. In the case of AMD, they call theirs AMD-V. It used to be known as the Pacifica extensions. Um, the Intel, I think, we used to was it Vanderpool? I think is what they were. We called they called theirs is the, the amd v, the VT stuff. Anyway, they've actually they kind of settled down on Intel is VT and AMD is the AMD-V.
1: Assuming for Intel that it means something like virtualization technology or something like that. Yeah, probably something like
4: that, exactly. Okay. Now, you
1: brought up a couple of
4: other terms there as well. PAE is actually not even related to virtualization at all, but it's good that we talk about it now to make sure we clarify that. So PAE actually stands for Physical Address Extensions, and it's a capability that Intel and then AMD built into their processors back when the 686 architecture first started coming around. And it basically allows a 32-bit processor to address more memory than just 4 gigabytes because the native... 32-bit processor can only address up to 4 gigabytes of RAM. And even that's kind of funny because the truth is if I have 4 gigabytes of RAM in a 32-bit machine, I'm still only going to get about 3.2 or 3.3 gigabytes because of how they had to do all the hardware addressing in the PCI space. So PAE allows you to address up to 64 gigabytes on a 32-bit CPU. Now, this is actually important to understand, though, because the Zen Hypervisor itself comes in three different flavors, shall we say. There's a 32-bit, straight 32-bit version of the Zen hypervisor. There's a 32-bit PAE version of the Zen hypervisor and a 64-bit version. And when I say 64-bit, I'm talking x86-64 or the AMD 64 extensions. Intel refers to them as EM64T. It's it's not the Itanium stuff. So, so 64-bit is, is the, the AMD Intel stuff. There's actually three different versions. And this is actually a good thing to bring up, too, because as of SP1... We now allow you to run 32-bit operating systems on top of the 64-bit hypervisor. Before this point, you were stuck to, if I had the 32-bit Zen hypervisor, I could only run 32-bit virtual machines. And if I had the 32-bit PAE hypervisor, I could only run 32-bit PAE. And same thing with 64. Now that we've modified the hypervisor so that if if you have 64-bit hardware, you can run the 64-bit hypervisor. Zen Hypervisor, which will allow you to run 32-bit operating systems, just straight 32 oper- uh, 32-bit operating systems, in full virtualization mode, but you can run 32-bit PAE and 64-bit uh, operating systems in paravirtual mode as well.
3: Right on. Cool. And actually, there, there's one other thing that I want to point out that this is really a cool way to show off the power of open source. What's cool is Intel and AMD are really behind this because they love the idea that this is pushing their high-end chips. Because of that, both AMD and Intel are contributing just a ton of code to the XEN open source project to make sure that everybody can take advantage of everything that they're doing on the chips because they're constantly updating the VT and the dash V at all the time to make it better, faster, stronger.
1: Now that we have our overview on and we've mentioned a couple of things coming out with Service Pack 1, can you expound on that a little bit? Tell us some of the new cool things that are coming out with SP1.
4: Exactly, yeah. I'll just kind of go down the list. We've already mentioned a couple of things like the concept of running 32-bit operating systems on top of the 64-bit hypervisor, that That's new with Support Back 1. Another cool thing is that we've added a para-virtualized frame buffer device now, which allows us to have a video card in para-virtualized VMs where we didn't have that capability before. Uh, We're actually now fully supporting migration or relocation, which basically means while a virtual machine is running, I can move it from one physical server to another physical server. That's now being supported. That's actually
3: very cool. I can, from a command line send a VM that's currently up and running. And the first thing I can do um, is just the standard migration. When I do that, what it does is it pauses the VM. It then will send the memory footprint over to the other machine, mount that up, and, you know, the machine will have only been gone for however it long it takes to copy that memory map, you know, 30 seconds maybe. They also have the ability to now do it live. So what wow. happens when I do it live is... We can have people, you know, hitting the box, doing video downloads, whatever, and I can migrate it from my box to your box live without end users even knowing. It's almost like a clustered operating
1: system rather than just clustered data. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Very cool.
4: Yeah, some other things that we're supporting now as well is we've actually changed up the management tools that we had in the original release of SLES 10. We only had one little YAST module that we'd used, and that would basically walk you through you know, creating, basically helping you to create a virtual machine. And and once you got past that point, you really couldn't do much. We've actually replaced that now with three different utilities. That YAST module is basically just changed into one that helps you configure all of the appropriate software on your box for a Zen to make sure you've got the Xen software and the Zen kernel and hypervisor and stuff installed. And then the actual management applications, we have a a VM install utility that we've written here in-house at Novell that helps you actually easily create or install a virtual machine by asking you the series of questions and you just basically go through and then it'll install the virtual machine for you. We also adopted a, another virtual machine management utility called Vert Manager, which is one that Red Hat has been developing, and now we're jumping in and, and developing along with that as well. And Vert Manager is really nice because it provides you a nice graphical interface or command line for that matter, because you can actually run the, the, the VM install utility or Vert Manager from the command line. It provides you a nice graphical interface to show you the, the virtual machines that are running on your, your box, how to start them, to stop them. You can go and even change some of the configuration of the hardware in there. And now that on the, the topic of vert Manager, it's a good time to really talk about a new feature that's in there as well called managed domains. Now, with SP1, we now have the capability of doing what's called managed domains. The alternative to that, I guess, would be unmanaged domains, which is how we used to manage virtual machines before SP1. Basically, an unmanaged domain is you have to have a text configuration file that you would use that would define to the hypervisor how that virtual machine is supposed to run. V- very similar to like in the VMware world, you have the VMX files. Yeah. We have the same type of thing here in what we now call unmanaged domains. It's just a plain text file that basically lists out a series of parameters that the virtual machine is supposed to look like. And then when you create that virtual machine, you basically feed that configuration file to the hypervisor and it creates the, the virtual machine based on that config file.
3: And that config file covers stuff like memory, processors. Exactly. Where the yeah. disk is located. all Exactly.
4: That. All of that stuff. Now, with SP1, we use a concept of managed domains, which basically means instead of storing the configuration information in each of these separate little configuration files, we actually can now store the configuration information for each virtual machine in a database called ZenStore. And ZenStore actually has two little parts. It's what we call a current working set and a persistent set. The current working set has always been around, and it's what we would store the configuration information for virtual machines that we're currently running. But once we would shut down that virtual machine, the configuration information would be taken out of the ZenStore database because it wasn't current at that point in time. There's now a persistent part or a persistent set in the ZenStore database that allows us to store the configuration information for virtual machines even if they're not running. So now with Virt-Manager, Virt-Manager works exclusively with managed virtual machines. So with Virt-Manager I can have half a dozen or more virtual machines installed on my system and not have them running, and I can open up Vert Manager, and I can see listed all of those virtual machines, and I can dig down into them, and I can see the parameters that are configured, and I can change some of those parameters and, and all, and then I can easily launch them from the, from there as well. So this is the new concept of, of managed domains as well, which is, is important to understand.
3: But there's, there's actually an issue, though, with that architecture, isn't there?
4: Yes, there is, because at this point in time, that ZenStore database is only... Accessible on the box that Zen is running on, in other words, if we talk about the concept where we can migrate or move virtual machines back and forth from physical uh, different physical servers, so let's say I have a server farm with ten server physical servers in there and they're all running as Zen virtual machine hosts or virtual machine servers. The problem with the Zen store database at this point in time is it's not a shared database across multiple machines. So if I install virtual machines and I have them on one box, the other machines in that server farm really can't see that configuration information. Something that drives me bonkers right now, but we'll hopefully be able to address that uh, as we go down the road. Because honestly, I think it's a really good idea to put the configuration information in a database. Now it's just making that database a centrally managed database that that will make it even more powerful.
3: So I just want to make sure everybody's real clear on that. So what that means is if I take a host and I run through the wizard and create a virtual machine or a dom u on that box it's now in the managed domain, which means when the vM is not up and running, I have a menu option for that vM. I can double click on it, it will launch the vM, run the vM I can pause it, I can stop it, I can shut it down again when I shut it down, I still have a, a line item that represents that vm Yes, if Randy gave me a vM that I then want to mount on my host, but it's not one that I created locally. What happens is from the command line, I can very easily issue a command line to launch up that VM. Start it up. And as soon as I start it up, it appears in Vert Manager. Yes. Because it's running right now and I can see processor utilization, I can remotely view it, I can pause it, and I can even stop it. But when I stop it, It goes away from the menu. So that's really the difference that we're talking about.
4: Between a managed versus unmanaged, and the last one you described was unmanaged. Now, it is actually possible to take an unmanaged VM and import that into the database. So you say if Randy gave me or gave you that virtual machine, I could run a command line command that would basically take that configuration file and import it into that database, the ZenStore database on that virtual machine server, okay. and then it would actually show up in that list as being a managed VM. So we can do that. The problem just is, is that that database exists only on a single machine. So if I have another machine you know, next to it that's a virtual machine server, I'm not going to see any of those virtual machines in that by running Vert Manager on that machine that I would actually see you know, on the machine that they're installed on.
3: Okay. Hey, thanks a lot for coming by, Ron. That was a great overview, really kind of gave us an idea of what XEN is and specifically what capabilities are in SP1. I think what we're going to do is we're going to invite you back to do a much more advanced topic. For the people that have already listened to this or have played with XEN before, we can just talk about some seriously geeky, nerdy things about how they work, how we can get better performance, some of the best practices and such. So thanks for coming by. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Ron.
0: That's it for this podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm David Mayer.
1: I'm Randy Goddard.
0: Randy, let's hear the disclaimer.
1: Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. Remember, most of our content is directed by our listener community. So please send us your requests and comments by leaving them at novell.com slash or by emailing us at openaudio at novell.com. That's it for this time. We'll see you next time.